This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 264, The Man of Legend. Today I want to tell the story of a samurai who enjoys one of the most unique distinctions in Japanese history. Today, if you go to Tokyo Station and work your way west, you'll arrive in the eastern section of the Imperial Palace, an open area of the palace grounds through which, in wonderfully modern Tokyo style, a public roadway now runs. It's a great place for a stroll to take in a lovely day, to distract yourself from working in the National Archives, panicking that handwritten sources are impossible to read, and God help me, how am I going to get this project done if I can't actually read anything? Or, at least, it seems like it would be that way. I wouldn't know. While you're strolling in that lovely bit of palace, you might notice that among its many fine features is a rather impressive statue of a samurai dramatically astride his horse as it is about to gallop off into battle, or, quite possibly as he's about to get thrown from the horse, it's a very dramatic angle. The first time I saw this statue was in 2006, fresh out of high school, off to Japan for the first time. And I remember thinking that A, hot damn, I am not in Kansas, or I guess Westchester anymore, and B, who is this guy that he merits a statue in front of the Emperor's Palace? That guy was named Kusunoki Masashige and today I'm going to tell you why he merits that statue out of all the people who could be up there, because he is the only one with a statue in the palace grounds. There's no statue of Tokugawa Ieyasu, or any of the Tokugawas, or any real acknowledgement beyond some historical plaques that they were the ones who built the palace. There's nothing for the great leaders of the Imperial Restoration, despite the fact that they are the reason the palace is now, you know, the Emperor's, no great statues of the war leaders of the empire, just Kusunoki Masashige. So that's the question that drives this episode. Why him? Why him alone? Now, to answer that question, we obviously need to explore the life of Kusunoki Masashige, and that means taking a leap back in time to a period we've talked about before, but not for a long time, the 1300s. This was the age when Japan was ruled by the Hojo clan, acting as the Shiken, the regents of the shogun, under Japan's first openly samurai-dominated government. Though samurai influence in government has an even longer history, open samurai rule under a formalized government structured independently of the old imperial government in Kyoto was relatively new. It was not until Minamoto no Yoritomo arranged to have himself declared shogun in 1192 
that warrior government in its own right really took off. In the intervening 100-ish years, the samurai government had some noteworthy successes, most famously driving off not one but two invasions by the Mongols, as we've discussed in some depth before. However, those successes came at a price. The Hojo government was, by the 1300s, running pretty far in the red, and the failure to pay out the kind of rewards expected for service was badly undermining its legitimacy with average samurai. So when what should have been a fairly minor matter of bureaucratic family succession came to a head in 1332, the response went far beyond what anyone involved could have predicted. You see, while the shogun, and then later the shikken, ran the country from Kamakura, the line of emperors based in Kyoto continued to exist as well. An imperial court, a large imperial clan, and an extended group of noble courtier families continued on in Kyoto, stripped of real power but still possessed of ceremonial significance. By this point, the imperial family was large enough to have divided into two competing lineages, each with a complex genealogy that we don't really need to get into here. Suffice it to say there are two branches of the imperial family by this point, and that both wanted sole control of the throne. The compromise brokered by the Hojo was to alternate which branch got to send a candidate to the throne, which worked well enough until the accession of a hot-headed young emperor, all of 30 years old, named Go Daigo. Go Daigo did not like this arrangement of alternation, or indeed Hojo rule over Japan more generally. He idolized the good old days, when the emperors ruled over Japan directly. In fact, he chose his renial name in reference to Emperor Daigo, a ruler from the 900s. The Go here just means latter. Sometimes you see his name written as Daigo the Later or Daigo the Second. Godaigo admired his predecessor Daigo's rather direct involvement in politics, as recorded in chronicles like the Engishiki. In particular, Daigo's partisan promotion of his favorites and his active involvement in the major scandals of the time, rather than accepting a more passive role for himself. In 1331, Godaigo decided to live by his namesake's example. He declared his own son heir in violation of the agreement brokered by the Hojo which, of course, stipulated that after Godaigo left the throne, either by dying or, as was more common, by abdicating, it should go to the other branch of the imperial family. The sitting Hojo Shiken, Hojo Moritoki, promptly intervened. First, he requested that the emperor change his honorable mind, and then when that did not happen, he mobilized a force to arrest the emperor. A brief attempt by Godaigo's allies to fight this Hojo army was promptly crushed. Godaigo was rounded off and shifted off to exile on the Oki Islands, some small islands in the Sea of Japan between Japan and Korea. However, then a funny thing happened. You see, Godaigo's exile, the fact that the emperor of all people had been put into exile by the Hojo, became a rallying cry for those opposed to Hojo rule. We've already covered one of these men before, actually. His name was Ashikaga Takauji, and though he was a Hojo retainer, he ended up betraying the Hojo cause and turning against them. However, he was far from alone in rallying to the Imperial Banner. Many other samurai, especially those with a bone to pick with the Hojo, did as well. Among them was Kusunoki Masashige. Now, I can tell you very little about who Kusunoki Masashige was before this point. The main chronicle of this period, the Taiheiki, 
describes him as a descendant of a famous family of the nobility, the Tachibana clan, as well as a distant relative of the Minamoto. However, that ancestry has never been verified outside of the Taiheiki, and no sources other than it exist for his young life. What we do know is that at some point in 1332, Kusunoki decided to throw his lot in with those rebelling against the Hojo in Godaigo's name, and made his way to Kyoto, the rallying point for the rebellion. At the time, the city was divided between a Hojo garrison in the Rokuhara neighborhood and Godaigo's loyalists. So, rather than entering the divided city, Masashige made his way northeast to the massive Buddhist complex outside of it at Mount Hiei. Godaigo, meanwhile, ended up escaping his exile and returning to the Kyoto area to take control of the rebellion, and he, too, went to Mount Hiei for the same reasons. The Taiheiki relates that Godaigo was concerned about the fate of his rebellion. Yes, people were rallying to his cause, but no one of consequence or importance had defected just yet. Consumed with worry that his rebellion would fizzle, Godaigo had a dream. In that dream, he saw a throne facing to the south, shaded by a tree. Then two children appeared and said, Nowhere in all the realm may you hide even briefly, yet beneath that tree there is a seat facing south. Sit there a while, it was made ready for your sake. Now it's worth noting that this idea of facing south has a particular significance. In the traditional geographic arrangement of a Chinese palace, the person of honor or distinction, usually the emperor, sits facing to the south. Godaigo, putting this together, was convinced that the dream was a revelation from the gods designed to show him how to proceed, and that, in kanji, if you combine the character for tree and the character for south, you get the character for comfort trees, or in Japanese, Kusunoki. And so Godaigo went looking for a warrior named Kusunoki, and eventually Kusunoki Masashige was summoned to the emperor's side and asked if he had a plan to win the war. To which Masashige replied, quote, Not by opposing strength against strength will we triumph, even if we assemble together the warriors of more than 60 provinces to contest the men of Musashi and Sagami, which was the power base of the Hojo. But if we fight with a plan, there will be nothing to fear, since the guileless eastern barbarians of the Hojo can do nothing beyond smashing what is sharp and destroying what is strong. In other words, Yes, the Hojo are tough, but they're also dumb, and that's how we'll beat them. Now, I want to caution us all that the Taiheiki in particular has a real interest in puffing Masashige up. He's basically the hero of the whole damn thing. It is, of course, unlikely that the Emperor actually had a divinely inspired vision that led him to put Masashige in charge of his forces. The whole thing smacks of justification after the fact. It's also unlikely that Masashige responded in such a pithy way. Now, I want to caution us all that the Taiheiki in particular has a real interest in puffing Masashige up. He's basically the hero of the whole damn thing. It is, of course, unlikely that the Emperor actually had a divinely inspired vision that led him to put Masashige in charge of his forces. The whole thing smacks of justification after the fact. It's also unlikely that Masashige responded in such a pithy way. What we know is that, one way or another, Masashige was placed in charge of defending the nexus of the rebellion at Kyoto. Specifically, he was charged with defending two crucial fortresses guarding the routes from the east into Kyoto itself, Akasaka and Chihaya castles, 
near what's now Osaka. The defense of these two fortresses was what began the construction of the Masashige legend, despite the fact that he actually technically lost his first battle. You see, the siege of Akasaka Castle in the Taiheiki plays out just as Masashige predicts in his little one-liner to the Emperor. Through guile and cunning, his forces hold out far longer than they should have been able to, despite losing the castle in the end. The Taiheiki recounts all kinds of wonderfully clever strategies Masahige used to wipe out wave after wave of attacks on the castle, from carefully timed cavalry ambushes to my personal favorite, a fake castle wall that collapsed while the attacking army was trying to climb it. Ultimately, Masashige could not hold the fortress, especially once the Hojo wised up and stopped with the frontal attacks, instead cutting off the castle's food and water supplies to starve it out. According to the Taiheiki, once it became clear that Masashige could not win, he used an ingenious ruse to escape. In the middle of the night, his forces gathered the bodies of the attacking Hojo dead, dressed in their uniforms, and then set fire to their own castle. In the confusion, the Hojo believing that Masashige and his followers had committed suicide in order to avoid capture, Masashige and company were able to escape. From there, Masashige and his followers retreated to their fallback point, their second fortress at Chihaya, a bit closer to Kyoto and also far more defensible. Where the defenses at Akasaka had been a bit ramshackle and run down, the defense of that fortress had given the Chihaya Castle garrison time to repair their own fortifications. Chihaya Castle was also better located, atop a tall mountain with a commanding view of the countryside, and surrounded by ravines that made it easy for the defenders, with superior knowledge of the terrain, to ambush their attackers. The result was a bloody slaughter of Hojo troops who, despite superior numbers, failed to crack the defenses of the castle. Now, if you read the Taiheiki account of it, it makes it sound like Kusunoki Masashige single-handedly destroyed the Hojo by bleeding their best armies in a prolonged battle, which caused their government to collapse, but this is in fact not what happened. Kusunoki Masashige's valiant defenses were important, not primarily because of the damage they inflicted on the Hojo, but because the delay of the Hojo advance convinced some on the Hojo side whose loyalties were wavering that it was time to jump ship. Specifically, two key Hojo commanders defected when it became clear that the Hojo position was not as strong as it seemed. The first, Ashikaga Takauji, took a force he'd assembled to assist the Hojo garrison in Kyoto's Rokuhara neighborhood and attacked that garrison instead. Sweeping into the capital, he crushed the Hojo and opened the way for Godaigo's return to the Imperial Palace. The second, Nita Yoshisada, took his forces and attacked the Hojo bases in Musashi and Sagami provinces to the east, which were lightly defended as most Hojo forces had been sent west to resecure Kyoto. As a result, Yoshisada swept through the region, ultimately burning the Hojo capital of Kamakura and wiping out the Hojo clan. In the end, Godaigo's rebellion, which we call the Genko War today, ended in an unlikely victory for the rebels, cementing Kusunoki Masashige's stature as a major figure in the country, even if he had not, as it seemed in some accounts, single-handedly won the war. As a reward, Kusunoki Masashige rose quickly within the emperor's inner circle. He'd risen from a minor landholder to the inner circle of the most powerful man in Japan 
in a very short time. However, Godaigo's government very quickly ran into trouble. Many of the samurai who supported his rebellion had not done so out of any particular love for the idea of restoring power to the emperor, but simply out of hatred for, or at least distaste for, the Hojo. Taking orders from Godaigo was not what they had signed up for. In particular, one of the generals who defected to the emperor's side, Ashikaga Takauji, quickly grew tired of taking orders from this young punk. In particular, Takauji and his allies were dismayed by Godaigo's attempts to curb the power of the samurai class and bring Japan back to the administrative system of the Heian era centuries earlier. Godaigo's edicts stripped powers away from samurai landholders and returned them to imperially appointed provincial governors and privileged members of the Kuge aristocracy over samurai. According to later histories written with the patronage of the Ashikaga family, Ashikaga Takuji actually attempted to warn Godaigo off of these kind of policies out of fear they would alienate the majority of samurai, but was rebuffed by the emperor. But of course, we have to take that with a grain of salt. One way or another, these policies of attacking samurai privilege were one reason why it took all of three years for Godaigo's peaceful rule over Japan to break down into a new civil war. The impetus this time was an attempt by a distant Hojo relative to seize the opportunity provided by growing discontent with Godaigo to re-establish Hojo supremacy in Japan. This relative, whose name I will not even bother telling you, made his way to Kamakura and tried to declare a restoration of the Hojo government, and that attempt was swiftly crushed by forces mobilized by Ashikaga Takauji. However, Takauji then realized something. The fact that this Hojo nobody thought he could restore the Hojo to power showed just how profoundly unpopular Godaigo was, and he could potentially take advantage of that. So, in 1335, Ashikaga Takauji declared himself the new shogun and launched a rebellion against Godaigo. Initially, the rebellion went, well, rather badly. Takauji was successful early on, smashing a force led by his old ally, Niteyoshi Sada, sent to retake Kamakura. However, his own countermarch on Kyoto was defeated by Godaigo's forces, and Takauji was forced to retreat all the way to Kyushu to regroup. However, Takauji was not the kind of man who admitted defeat. Instead, he worked to rally the clans of Kyushu to his cause and crushed those who would not submit. With Kyushu behind him, Takauji then advanced on Kyoto once more. In the meantime, the great hero of the war against the Hojo, Kusunoki Masashige, had seen his own star in Kyoto start to fall. The best accounts of this period that we have start to differ at this point. According to the Taiheiki, Masashige counseled one more clever strategy, abandon Kyoto to the advancing Ashikaga. His rationale was straightforward. Gambling on a defense of the city was, well, a gamble. It would be far easier to abandon the city, let the Ashikaga overextend themselves by conquering it, and then, once Takauji entered Kyoto, he could be surrounded and cut off from reinforcements by a counterattack, while forces loyal to Godaigo would have time to gather for a final blow. The idea of baiting a trap with Kyoto was initially received positively by Godaigo, but his courtiers convinced him 
that because heaven favored the imperial cause, drawing out the conflict was pointless. All that was left to do was smash the upstart Ashkaga. The other major chronicle of this time, the Baishoron, composed with Ashkaga patronage in the 1350s, gives a very different account. In that version, Masashige counsels that Nita Yoshisada should be recalled to Kyoto and executed, and the emperor should make peace with Ashkaga Takauji and make him the shogun, after all he had served so loyally against the Hojo. And this version is definitely suspect because of how blatantly pro-Ashkaga it is, but it is impossible to discount the idea that Masashige counseled peace and reconciliation in some form. One way or another, his suggestions were rebuffed. Instead, he was ordered to Hyogo to reinforce Nita Yoshisada. The climactic battle was to take place at Minato-gawa, which, as the name implies, is next to the Minato River. The idea on the Loyalist side was to try and hold the river crossing, which led to Kyoto. But the Loyalists had no boats, and the Ashkaga did, so instead the Ashkaga simply sailed around the crossing and surrounded the Loyalist forces. The Taiheiki gives this moment a real aura of inevitability. Indeed, this last section of the text starts with Masashige had resolved that this would be his last battle, and describes Masashige sending his 11-year-old son home with instructions to fight to the last man after his death. Though Masashige arrived in time to support Nita Yoshisada, the lack of a loyalist navy proved to be a huge issue. In order to defend against a shipborne crossing at a different spot on the Minato River, Nita and Masashige were forced to split their forces up, at which point they were easily surrounded. The Taiheiki relates that when Masashige was surrounded, he turned to his brother, Masasue, who had joined him in this battle, and said, quote, Our enemies have cut us off from front and rear, and we've been separated from our command post. We now have no way of getting out of this. Let's smash headfirst into the enemies in front and drive them around, then fight the enemies behind us, unquote. At which point, the two Kusunoki brothers charged into the lines of the Ashkaga with 700 horsemen at their side. The Taiheiki describes Masashige driving his enemies before him, killing noble and famous warriors on the Ashkaga side, while his 700 succeed in temporarily driving back an Ashkaga force of over 500,000. Though, of course, you can't really take those numbers seriously. When Masashige realized he was beaten, he turned to his brother and asked him, quote, They say your thought at the last moment determines whether your next life is going to be good or bad. Tell me, brother, what is your wish in the Nine Realms of the Afterlife? At which point Masasue responded that he wished to be reborn on this earth seven times to destroy the Emperor's enemies, a sentiment Masashige shared. At that point, the two brothers committed suicide to avoid the disgrace of capture. The defeat at Minato-gawa spelled the end of any hope for Godaigo's forces to hold Kyoto. He abandoned the city and fled once more to Mount Hiei, leaving behind the three imperial treasures which represented the legitimacy of the emperors, though he would later claim that the three ones he'd left behind were counterfeited and that he still had the real set with him. From there, Godaigo would flee to Yoshino, close to Nara to the south of Kyoto. Meanwhile, Ashkaga Takuuji would look to legitimate himself as the shogun by finding an emperor all his own, using the regalia left behind by Godaigo, which either were or were not real, who knows, 
he crowned a new emperor whose name I will not even bother you with because that emperor's job was just to offer Ashikaga Takeuji the job of shogun in an official capacity, which Takeuji then humbly accepted. Where did he find a spare emperor just lying around, you might ask? Well, remember those two branches of the imperial family and their succession dispute? Godaigo only represented one of those branches, so Takeuji found someone from the other branch and made him the emperor. The war for legitimacy between Godaigo and his line, which we call the Southern Court because of their base in Yoshino, and the Ashikaga-backed line of emperors, the Northern Court, based in Kyoto, would go on for 60 years. The conflict did not end until 1392, when the sitting Southern Court Emperor agreed to abandon his claim to the throne. Meanwhile, what about the legend of Kusunoki Masashige? Well, it didn't take long after his death for him to become a revered figure within the pantheon of Japanese warriors. As we've mentioned a few times now, the Taiheiki, the main chronicle of this period, absolutely valorizes him as a brilliant war leader and an ideal samurai. Even the chroniclers on the Ashikaga side of the conflict were forced to find a way to rehabilitate him as an Ashikaga supporter, hence the inclusion of the story of Masashige, urging reconciliation with Ashikaga Takeuji, and being rebuffed. Masashige, you see, had become one of those tragic samurai figures we've talked about before, like Yorozu and Saigo Takamori, both of whom we've talked about on this podcast, he'd gone down fighting for his cause and refused to accept surrender, and that made him a figure of romance. And of course, it's particularly easy to idealize someone who is now, you know, dead, because they're not around anymore to be all human and flawed. Kusunoki Masashige became a figure of legend, a sort of inspiration for future samurai to point to. If you're a young samurai who doesn't know how to act... Well, get out your WWMD bracelet. What would Masashige do? By the end of the Edo period, Kusunoki Masashige was well known enough to be one of those stock historical characters who was part of the grist for the mill of pop culture. Masashige's glorious victories, and especially his heroic last stand, were the subject of stories, prints, kabuki dramas, and the like. Celebrated cultural figures like Basho, or the woodblock artist Toyohara Chikanobu, got in on the action. His aura of fame was even used to legitimate areas far from the life of the samurai. For example, it became popular to repeat a totally unfounded story about Kusunoki Masashige's sister, who was supposedly the mother of Kanami, one of the most famous no-actors of his generation or any other generation. Ironically enough, with the patronage of the Ashikaga shoguns, Kanami and his son Zaami helped systematize no as an art form and put it on the map as something respectable, and that respectability was only enhanced by tying it to the legend of Kusunoki. The special status of Kusunoki Masashige only grew during the Meiji period. The samurai who organized to overthrow the Tokugawa shoguns looked to history for their precedents and for their heroes, and especially to the reign of Emperor Go-Daigo, who they claimed as an intellectual forefather. They were the ones who popularized a new term of reference for Godaigo's seizure of power from the Hojo, the Kenmu Restoration, a name that references the Nengo, or era name, of the Kenmu period during which the action took place. And just like the old Kenmu Restoration, 
these samurai would lead a new Meiji restoration. Of course, the leaders of the Meiji era had no interest in actual rule by the emperor. Instead, he was a convenient figurehead for their agenda. However, the story of Kusunoki Masashige worked well as a metaphor for the kind of loyalty to the new system they wanted to inspire. So the Meiji era saw the rise of a sort of cult of Kusunoki, venerating the samurai as the ideal model of loyalty to the emperor that all of his subjects were expected to follow. That cult was propagated by Meiji statesmen, who for example commissioned that statue on the palace grounds, by military leaders like Nogi Moreske, who for example referenced Kusunoki as one of his heroes and inspirations, and even by private intellectuals like Fukuzawa Yukiji. The heroic status of Kusunoki Masashige was so unquestionable that when two of Japan's leading historians tried to question it, that act nearly destroyed their careers. A pair of Tokyo Imperial University professors, Kume Kunitake and Shigeno Yasutsugu, raised objections to the dominant narratives of the Kusunoki story. Kume, a textual historian, argued that the Taiheiki was not a reliable source and that many of its claims, for example surrounding the age of Kusunoki Masashige's children, did not fit available external sources, thus the author clearly did not carefully research what he recorded, and the assertions of the text could not be trusted. Shigeno, meanwhile, raised a more high-minded objection to the politicization of the Kusunoki narrative as impeding unbiased historical research. Both men were subject to a barrage of public and private criticism. Kume was eventually forced to resign because of another paper he published, in which he tried to historicize Shinto as a form of animism rather than writing of it as a unique heavenly tradition. By the time of World War II, the cult of Kusunoki was in full swing. Soldiers were enjoined, like Kusunoki, to die and be reborn seven times, destroying the Emperor's enemies. Kamikaze pilots were given lectures about Kusunoki's willingness to sacrifice himself for the Emperor, and urged to emulate him. The phrase, Shichisho Hokoku, to serve the state with seven lives, became a sort of stock line of imperial propaganda. The family crest of the Kusunoki clan, the Kikusi, or Chrysanthemum in Water, became a codename associated with kamikaze operations. After World War II, the cult of Kusunoki fell off in popularity for obvious reasons. Today, his legend does remain popular, though. Like all famous samurai we've talked about, he's been the subject of NHK taiga dramas and samurai movies and the like. Among the Japanese ultra-right, he remains a figure of special veneration. To others, he's just one more member of the pantheon of cultural heroes in Japan. But in the end, regardless of how you think of him today, he's still the only one with that statue in the Imperial Palace. A fate, I suppose, the promoters of the Kusunoki legend, and perhaps even Kusunoki himself, would approve of. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to David Nuremberg for joining to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time when we take a look at one of the most unusual stories I've ever encountered, the story of the scholar Hirata Atsutane and the boy who claimed to be a tango.